I'm a big advocate for showing people what's possible because how dare you tell me to pull myself up by the bootstraps or, or, you know, to well, what, right. To what exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I don't even know what's <laughs> possible, how can I aspire to become it? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Javon McCormick. Modern leadership is about people. My guest today is my good friend, Javon McCormick, who's helping to define the modern leadership today. Javon has an incredible story on his rise to becoming a CEO. He was born the son of a pimp father and an orphan mother on welfare, and poverty, abuse, and eviction, and constant discrimination were part of his everyday life. Today, he's the CEO of Scribe Media, a multi-million dollar publishing company with the number one company culture in America, according to Entrepreneur Magazine. He's also the Wall Street Journal author of Modern Leadership and a top-rated keynote speaker, Javon, welcome and thank you for joining us on the Elevate Podcast. My man, Bob Glazer. Yeah, you know, it's, it's about time, Bob. I, you know, <laughs> I, when your book came out, I was like, you've been on my podcast, right? And you're like, no, I haven't. I was like, really? Yep. Maybe we just have had too many conversations uh, that I thought we did. So it's past due. That is my fault. And, you know, so as we were prepping for this, I was thinking about having talked to you so much and seen your incredible uh, speech. I mean, one of the First time I saw you speak, one of the most moving speeches I've ever uh, seen. But I, I look at your life sort of in three phases, right? There was kind of your, and and that's simplistic, but maybe for the purposes of this conversation, that <laughs> there was kind of your childhood and getting yeah. through that. And then there was this, I'm going to write a book about this story. And then the book about this story led you to running that company and then sort of taking it over. So it's just, we're, we're going to go through all of that. And then, and then being the leader who's writing the book about leadership, because I, to me, those things are all inextricably intertwined. So start us off. I, I know we could spend an hour on your story, but can you give us the, the, maybe the abbreviated version of your first book so we can talk about the second book? Uh, oh, okay. Abbreviated version. <laughs> so, so the, wow. Cliff note version. I know, I know that's hard, but abbreviated could be five or 10 minutes, whatever. All right, whatever all right. Yeah. So, so as you know, the book was, I did that first book 100% for my, my children. I never wanted the book to go public and, but through a lot of encouragement, support conversations. Okay. We, we made the book public and it was because I, I don't have a legacy. You know, my, my, as you said, my dad was black. My mom was white. Uh, my dad was a pimp and drug dealer. He put women on a street corner. They, they sold their bodies. My dad took every dollar uh, my mom was one of his his prostitutes. My dad also fathered twenty three children, so I'm I'm one of twenty three. My mom was raised in an old school nineteen fifties institutional orphanage. You know, when she turned seventeen years old, they gave her a small suitcase, twenty bucks, and they said, "Good luck to you." There's the world. She had never even seen a, a, a stoplight. Yeah, you know, she had no clue what the world uh, had to offer or what she was walking into. So, you know, those were the parents I, 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 you know, where it was born to. And, and I share with people regularly now, especially now with, with the, the whole Roe versus Wade that, that just uh, took place. You know, I'm a product of, of a bad abortion. When, when abortion was illegal, uh, my mom got pregnant the first time and my dad took her to have an illegal back alley abortion. And I did not know this, you know, no anesthesia, no, nothing like that. And the second time my mom got pregnant with me, 
she said the the abortion was so bad that she took her chances uh, of having a child, me. And I, I thought to myself, okay, how bad could that experience have been that you you couldn't even raise yourself because you were in an orphanage and you chose to raise a child. And, and so, yeah, she took her chances, but you know, to, to a pimp, a pregnant woman is no not, good. Not very, yeah. Right. You know, you're, you're hurting business. So my dad essentially cut my mom off. My mom raised me on welfare. I'd see my dad, you know, two, three times a month, maybe, um, but yeah, raised on welfare, you know, I, as you say, Cliff Notes version, man, I've eaten out of trash cans. I've been homeless at 13 on a bus stop. I've been in and out of juvenile three different times, juvenile prison. I'm very specific on that. It's not juvie. It's prison. <laughs> it's exactly. It's not juvie. Yeah. It's not juvenile detention. It's juvenile prison. It's prison for kids. That The only difference is you're under 18. That is it. And, and I share this with people. I was one of those kids. The first time I went to juvenile, I got put in solitary confinement. And I remember was, you, you just had a mat, a steel toilet, a steel sink, right. no blanket, nothing. And they turned the lights off. And you were just in this, you know, 12 years old. And, and no, you don't know if anyone's going to come get you. You you know nothing. But yeah, at six, seven, eight years old, uh, Bob, I was molested by one of my dad's prostitutes. She used to force me to perform oral sex on her. If I didn't do it right, she'd smack me in the face, punch me in the head, tell me to do it right. Once I was reunited with my mom at the age of 15, she took me to enroll in school. I, I was I was supposed to be a sophomore at the time. And, and Bob, she took me and the, and the counselor said, okay, here are your classes. And the counselor said a word I had never heard before. She said, okay, you're going to be in geometry. Bob, I had no clue what <laughs> geometry. I had never heard the word before. Yeah. And so six weeks later, I got all D's and F's. They realized, okay, this kid's not too bright. My mom has me tested, and I'm testing on the fifth and sixth grade level. Needless to say, graduation rolls around. I don't have enough credits. I don't graduate. I end up having to go to summer school to get my GED. Uh, never went to college. So, yeah, that's my uh, that, that's the condensed version. So there's a story in there, though. There's like a turning point. Was it an uncle, I think, who sort of... I mean, everyone... What was the turning point, you know, for you from all of this sort of cycle of violence to getting in trouble to school like what i mean you had something must have clicked at one or more points to get you on a different path right there there were three turning points as a child three right every story yeah, every that, that, that i look back on that you know first one came at i'd say 10 years old um my, when my dad drove me through uh river oaks in houston real, real uh, affluent neighborhood one of the most affluent neighborhoods in, in the country and that was the first time I saw 10, 15, $25 million homes that that one family lived in. And I had never seen that before. You know, the, these houses were bigger than the, the projects, the housing uh, projects I was living in. And I remember, 10 years old, I remember saying to myself, I'm going to have one of those one day. I had no clue how, what was going to make that happen, but that became the goal. So that was one turning point. Uh, the second one is when I truly, when I got abandoned in Dayton, Ohio, February, I was abandoned in a house with my three half brothers and sisters. They were, they were four, three, and two. And we were left in February, Dayton, Ohio for three weeks. And no one knew we were there. No one came looking for us. And I used to have to walk down to the store to steal food so we could eat. And Bob, I, I always remember the stress that I was under, that they would turn off the electricity. They would disconnect the, the water 
And, you know, we would either freeze or not have any, have any water. And, and just the stress of thinking of that every hour. When I got older, I, I realized, oh, if I could get through that, you know, I, can, I can get through the, the rest of this. So yeah. those are two. And then the third one, you, you nailed it. My uncle Bobby, after being bounced around to a different relative's house in and out of juvenile, my uncle Bobby finally did, agreed to take me in. So I lived with my uncle Bobby for about 16, maybe 18 months. And it was the first time I really had any structure. You know, he he introduced me to God. I no clue what what God was. And, and Uncle Bobby, you, you had Bible study on Tuesday, Bible study on Thursday, church on Sunday. And but he showed me structure, routine, discipline, organization. And, and all of those things were very pivotal, especially to a boy at the age, you know, 13 to 15 years old. Uh, those were were key moments for me that I just I thrived on. He taught me manners. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. May I please? Uh, very just things that that were really needed. Punctuality. So those are the three pivotal moments I would say from my childhood that that really stand out. It's interesting, you know, when, when you mentioned the the housing thing, I was talking to someone about sort of all the educational stuff and someone who knows a ton of data about what works and doesn't work. He was actually bringing up that exact point and was talking about like some of the struggles of different private schools and stuff to not, you know, have different communities intermingling. He said, he actually said the data says that when someone is exposed to something like you were or see something that they didn't even realize was possible, that that actually becomes extremely motivating for them almost exactly like you say he was actually just kind of espousing that principle to me last week so that's interesting that you share that i love that bob because here's the thing i have been on this kick lately even when i'm introduced as a speaker i tell people up front if by chance you walk on that stage and you're introducing me and you dare call me a motivational speaker i'm not coming out i refuse i'm not here to motivate you introduce me as the what's possible speaker i want you to see what's possible it's possible to come from what i come from and still achieve success but more importantly think about this bob right now in chicago it is so bad they've nicknamed it chirac so you've got five-year-old kids all the way up to 15 16 years old you're they're growing up every day murders, shootings, incarceration, drugs, poverty. And so it's nicknamed Chirac. Think about this, Bob. Where does that child learn that they can become a forest ranger? Think about that, Bob. Forest rangers start at about 40 grand a year. So not the highest paying career out there, but the thought of, wait a minute, I get to work in nature with trees, fresh air. How do I even know that's possible? So I'm a big advocate for showing people what's possible because how dare you tell me to pull myself up by the bootstraps or or you know to well, what right to what exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. if i don't even know what's <laughs> possible how can i aspire to become it it goes against some conventional wisdom of of you know again feeling like you're you'd be to show office or something out of their element, but rather than it being like, I- I'm actually surprised you haven't gone and bought a house in that community just to buy a house in that community, right? As you're almost as your little, I made a trophy. If yeah. it wasn't in Houston, <laughs> I would. <laughs> you could rent it. You could Airbnb it. I, mean, I just gave you an idea. I mean, that, that then it come full circle. The actual one that you were looking at that day. All right. Could, right. So, so, so Bob, since yeah. you touched on it, I'll, I'll go there with you. I'm man enough to admit this. So, what was it? Three years, two years ago, 2019, because it was right right before the, the virus hit. 
my wife and I, so, I, you know, I have four kids, yeah. uh, eight, seven, five, and three. So every year in River Oaks, the, the neighborhood we're talking about, they do this massive Christmas light display on all the houses. I mean, some of these houses spend six figures on Christmas yeah. lights. So you can rent a horse and carriage to take you around. And it's like 600 bucks for an hour for this, this carriage to take you around the neighborhood. So I paid the $600. And I remember going down the same street that my dad drove me down in this carriage, looking at the, the Christmas lights. And granted, I didn't have a house there, but I do live in a gated community. And, and I cried. And I remember I thought, wow, here I am with my kids on the same street. Uh, with the now the ability to pay six hundred dollars an hour to go look at Christmas lights, and yeah, I, I man, I cried. So let's uh, continue this incredible story. So you got your GED. Well, you didn't yeah. go to college, but I think your first job was scrubbing toilets, if I, if I remember correctly. So there's a lot of mailroom to CEO stories, not as many toilet scrubber to CEO stories. Although I think there was a famous book about the maid or or whatever. So walk me through the path here. Like, what was the progression from? the first job to even remotely from there? Oh, man. Okay. So my first job was cleaning toilets. And Bob, it took me years to admit this. So you got to let me share this. Yeah. So every day I would come in. My my hours were from nine to three. And I worked at this restaurant called Po Folks. And <laughs> that was actually I, the name of it. That was literally the name of it. And, and here's, the, here's the joke behind it. My mom and I when we were, when I was little, we would always make the joke. We would always say we were so poor, we couldn't afford the O and the R. We were just Po. Yeah. And so how fitting my first job would be at Po, folks. Um, but yeah, every day I went in and I had to clean up the restrooms from the, the night before, the evening crowd. And then, of course, they were always filthy. And one day I was just looking at the toilets and I said, man, okay, if this is my job, I'm going to make sure I have the cleanest toilets in the state of Texas. And I remember, you know, it took me years. I wouldn't admit this. That mentality, that thought, it actually came from my dad. Um, one day, my my dad, who he, he had me and a couple of my brothers with him, and he told us, he said, look, I don't care what you do in life, but whatever you do, be the best at it. He, he paraphrased the Abraham Lincoln quote. So he was good at his job. Yeah. And, and he told us, if you're <laughs> going to sweep streets for a living, yeah. be the best street sweeper. And now, granted, he could have given us a little more to aspire to, but I got the point. <laughs> and, and so because yes. of that, you know, when I was in that moment, I said, okay, everything I do from this point forward, I'm going to attempt to be the very best at it. And it started right there. And then I, um, my mom was working at an insurance company and she, she got me in at the insurance company. I was the mail clerk and mailboy. I was a file clerk. And so I would push my, you know, lo lowest job in the company. Um, but Bob, you talk about pivotal moment. I'm pushing my cart and I walk by a sign and it says free lunch and learn 401k. So of course, Bob, growing up, I did. All I saw was free lunch and learn. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm going. I am all over that. Bobby could have said free lunch and learn uh, foot fungus. And I, I was going. And yeah. so I'm pushing my cart and I asked the lady walking by, I said, excuse me, ma'am. Can you tell me where conference room 401k is? <laughs> and she laughed. And, and you know, because I didn't know. And she goes, No, that's what the the lunch and learn is uh, about. Man, Bob, I went to that thing. And Bob, you've heard me say this. Man, you can keep electricity, you can keep the wheel. You, you give me compound interest, man. It was the greatest 
that that's it. Compound interest is it for me. And in, in I learned all things investing, stock market. So that was. Joe, a, that I was just saw you know everyone's reading Morris Housel's book, The Psychology of Money. I don't know if you've heard of this, it's a phenomenal book. But I think he's the first rule of compounding interest is don't interrupt compounding interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what he said in there. When I realized that you could take a hundred dollars and turn it into two hundred, I, I literally thought it was like I'm like, okay, this can't be legal. I'm like, how is this possible? And no, no one's going to come look for me. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I was hooked, and and that was the the start of something beautiful. And from there, it was just okay. How how much money can I get into the stock market, and how fast? So there was a story I think from from one of the mailrooms or, or early on, or that mailroom where I, I think that we'll circle back and formed your leadership a little bit where you were just much better at your job than someone else and they were struggling. Can you share that story? Cause I thought it was really interesting. Oh man. That's uh, I, I don't have a lot of regrets in life, Bob. Uh, that's one that I do have. Um, so yes, I was good at my job. I had figured out, okay, how can I file the most? How can I get through the, my, my basket the fastest? And there was a lady I was working with and she was in her early thirties. She had a child, she was married. And I remember one day she pulls me to the side and she says, Hey, could you slow down? And and I, I looked at her like, slow down. What the, what the hell is that? I don't even know what that is. And, and she goes, I need this job. I was like, okay. And, and she goes, but you go faster than I do. And they're going to end up firing me. And unfortunately, Bob, I had the mindset of, okay, I got to eat. I only care about me and it's going to be better. You get fired than I get fired. And so reasonable. Yeah. And, and, and even more so Bob here, here's the thing. Um, What was sad and kind of cool at the same time, because I learned something about myself. I didn't even know I had another level, but I doubled down and went even faster and did even more. Um, Now here's the regret. Looking back, and, and granted, I was a young 20, 21-year-old kid. Looking back, I should have taught her what I was doing to be more efficient, more effective, and assist her in what she was doing. Because if nothing else, at least I would have given her some of the tools that I was you know, bringing to the table to, to be more efficient and more effective. And and I always that that's always a regret for me, man, because I didn't like the the fact that I was like, hey, too bad. And that did it shaped part of my my leadership because it wasn't putting people first; it was just putting myself first. Yeah, and I'm sure that stayed with you. I mean, we'll we'll talk about when we talk about modern leadership. I think that probably has been a, a foundational thought for you about how you elevate others as part of leadership. Oh, totally. It's Bob, you know, this, you, you and I talked about this when we were in South Carolina together, you know, right right now in our country, we're weaponizing words. And one of the words that is being weaponized, uh, just, just nasty uh, privilege. And, you know, people want to weaponize the word privilege. And what I find interesting about is we're, we're all after it. We all want to have a better life and a nicer home and, and, financial security and do better for it. We're all after it, but but we weaponize the word. And I personally don't find privilege to be a negative unless you are not using your privilege to elevate others. Right. You're you're you're, you're pushing yourself up on their heads rather than pulling them yes, with you. Exactly. So so many people will look at me and I tell them I'm like, "Look, 
I, I have extreme privilege. In, yeah. in but no one would have said that of you 20 years ago, right? Exactly. Yeah. But, but It's not but, an absolute. Yeah. But right. Bob, here, here's what's crazy about it. The extreme privilege comes from the fact of, Bob, you and I know this. I know things about this country that, Bob, let's call it what it is. You're never going to know. I've seen things that you're yep. never going to see. And that's a privilege in itself because now I have this deep responsibility, not obligation, responsibility to go back and share this privilege with other people to help elevate them out of their circumstances if they choose to execute and elevate themselves as well. Yeah, there's also a part of the narrative that that I think in society, the people who avoided a lot of this exposure or difficulty or pain they're actually struggling as early adults they're the they're the ones kind of leading the mental health crisis because like you said pandemic you know whatever not, like these are not things that are going to shake you no. they're problems to be solved they're not things that are going to make you unable to get out of bed in the morning but yep. but for people for whom you know everything has been moved out of the way or made easy or it, it, it's it's a little different than than what they were told bob you know, here, here's a great one. And a lot of people looked at me sideways. Some people just called flat, called me an ass for, yeah. for this one. So if you remember what was a couple of years ago, we had the big ice storm here in Texas and, you know, it shut down the, the state, yeah. you know, the grid went down and, you know, so we were, the we blame, were, there was blame. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> it, you know, it lasted uh, like three, some people, four days. And some people thought I was heartless. And I said, we're we're in Texas, okay. The the electricity's off, and, and, yeah. and they're like, "Well, how can you say?" It? And and I guess for me, because I grew up at yeah. times with, I tell people all the time, Bob, we, my mom and I never had these four things at the same time: money, water, electricity, or food. We were always missing one or two, and, right. and so when the power went off, I was like, "Okay, you know, here, do right. this, do this. We'll we'll get through." And come on, it's Texas. Three days later, it was 78 degrees outside. <laughs> so it's, um, you you nailed it though. It was crazy to see how many people just broke mentally because no electricity for three days. Right. And as far as I know, I know people died or, you know, people had, you know, if you had a, a medical thing, but, but no one died of starvation, right? right? No one died of lack of water. I mean, I, yes, there were probably medical emergencies and stuff, but yeah. If, if you, I get it. If you were in a hospital, if you, yeah. you had an yeah, illness, your oxygen it, machine doesn't right, work. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I'm talking able body, 28, 32 yeah. year olds that just completely mentally collapsed. Right. Things other than the last 50 to 75 years, and I won't take us too far on this tangent, but, but the, things weren't easy. The default was not that things were easy. And, and I think people have changed their assumption that everything should work and it should go right. And by the way, when it doesn't, that's the abnormality, not the abnormality is everything came together today or the weather was good or, you know, it, it and so you know, we understand expectations when your expectations is that, Hey, my life should be good and everything should go right. And nothing, there should always be water and there should always be electricity. Like that's very hard to come off that position. Then it is the opposite where, where you came from, where I, regularly these things were not in my life. And then they were added afterwards. Oh, Bob, I'm, I'm a smart ass with my own kids. Sometimes they'll, they'll be complaining about something or asking for something. And I'll go, shh, shh, wait a minute, hold on. And I go, wait a minute, watch this. And I'll run over to the light switch and I'll turn the light on. And I'm like, did you see that? And they're like, what? This is and like, I'm, let me Google this for you. When yeah, I, says, I go, the you? light came on. And, and uh, they were like, okay. I go, 
good looking out, dad, way to pay that bill. <laughs> and so, uh, but you're right. It's like some of the little things that, that people take for granted. I'm like, Hey, that was a, that was a luxury that the lights came on. But um, Bob, let, let me hit you real fast with this one. Here's, here's one that uh, again, I, I catch some criticism for when I was a kid on welfare, my mom and I had to stand in line once a month, three, four hours waiting for our food stamp allotment, waiting for our free handout. Now they put this shit on a debit card and no one knows if you have an Amex black card or, or what you're using to get it. And, and I, I share with my wife, I go, don't get me wrong. I'm not for shaming people, but at the same time, having to wait in line for three, four hours it taught me that I don't want to do this when I get older. When I saw my mom in line using food stamps and how we were looked at and judged, it made me say, oh, no, I'm this isn't happening to me. Now it just shows up on this card once a month and you don't even have to do anything for it. It's just like you don't have to stand in line. You don't have to go anywhere to even receive it. It just shows up magically on your card. And I don't know. I, I got a problem with that. It's just what what are we teaching with that? Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Right. And and whether people agree with you or don't agree with you, it's the perspective of someone. You mean, we have lots of experts now who have no, who's actually been through that yep <laughs> right no not not someone looking at it from the outside who's, who's hypothesizing so i mean it's an interesting viewpoint but i, I want to get back to the I, I because we got a lot here um so <laughs> how do we get from mailroom to leading the software company 
Oh man, Bob. Okay, so so I will I will I'll give you both parts, Bob, because we, right. we can hit the story on this. So yeah, I'm a mailroom, I'm I'm file clerk, and you know, I wanted a little more. I was I had a little ambition in me, and so I put my little this is early 90s, you know. So there there wasn't any uploading your resume. Like you right. had to this go. This is the was, name story. Yeah, yeah, this was was cold calling, going out to uh knock on doors, and and so I could not get a call back, Bob. I couldn't get an interview. I, no, no one would call me back. And one white guy, nice guy, uh, answered the phone and he said, Hey, how did you get a black first name, Javon, and an Irish last name, McCormick? And Bob, you know, I have my mom's last name and she got yeah. it in the orphanage. And, you know, we don't know where it comes, comes from. No, who, why, how we got this last name. So I was thrilled. I was like, oh, shit, my last name's Irish. This is amazing. And, and I was so happy. But when I hung up the phone, it hit me. I was like, oh, okay. Because they, they're seeing my first name, Javon. That's why I'm not getting callbacks. So right there, my, my full name's Javon Thomas McCormick. Right there, I said, that's it. I'm going to go by JT. Bob, the next week, man, I got callbacks, invites, appointments. It, it was mind-blowing. It was bittersweet, Bob. Yeah, because I'm guessing when you showed up, there was a little... Yeah. Oh, Bob, <laughs> I can't tell you the amount of times I showed up and people were like, JT McCormick? I was like, uh, yes, they're like, uh, you're not who we were expecting. I'm like, I was going to say, you could have had a meme seen by 10 million people of if you videoed all of the 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 actual... Right, you're not what... Yeah, You're not yeah. JT McCormick. <laughs> and so it was bittersweet, man. It, it was sweet because... I cracked the playbook. I figured right. out how to get in. Figured out the game. Yeah. It was bitter, clearly, because I had to edit myself to do it. And so, yeah, it, it was bittersweet. But I ended up working at a uh, payday loan company. Uh, the gentleman that owned the payday loan company, uh, come to find out, all he had was a high school diploma. He had started with one payday loan office, but now he had like 450 of them throughout the country. So for me, it was a bit of an indirect mentor. I saw someone who was close to like me that, you know, didn't have the formal uh, academic credentials. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And yeah. so I went to work for him. And again, I won't go through the whole thing, but my job used to be to sit in the back room and proof reports. You looked at a deposit slip in a printout and all you did for eight, nine hours a day was make sure the numbers lined up. So one day, Bob, I was like, okay, this sucks. And I, I asked the manager, I said, hey, how many of these have been done in the day? What, what's the record? And she at the time said uh, 42. And so on my drive home that day, I said, okay, tomorrow I'm going to smash the record. Next day, I did 71. And, and I picked 71 because it was a year I was born. Should have done forty three. This is like when I break my Peloton record, I break it by a second. Like I, you know, all right, that's no, fine. Man, I, I had to let you know I smashed right. that record. Um, which again, you know what it ended up doing? A lot of people were pissed because yeah. I now exposed that. Wait a minute. We're only done. doing yeah. this, but he's the, and so I can see know. how that would not make you very popular. Oh, yeah, but the owner got wind of it country guy, Bernie, Texas, man, I, I loved him. He calls me up. Hell, Jovan, what, what do you want to do, son? <laughs> and, and he calls me in his office and he goes, son, clearly that's not what you want to do the rest of your life. And uh, he had this picture behind him, Bob, and it was him and all the VPs of the company. And he says, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be in the picture. And he goes, hell, son, you got a set of balls on you, don't you? <laughs> and, and I said, you asked me what I wanted. And he said, okay. 
Well, Bob, he, he then I, I got the opportunity to start going out throughout the country. I'd go to these offices and really I started being known as the person who would come in and turn it around. But the way I did it was when the offices closed at night, I had two options. Go back to the hotel room, sit there till the next day, or I'd just stay in the office until you know, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning and learn the business. And because of that, at 23, he then wow. called me back to his office one day and he said, hell, son, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you vice president of a region. You can go to Louisiana, Vegas, or Portland, Oregon. I had never been to Portland. Uh, he said, okay, go up there for the weekend. Bob, man, again, this, I'm a 23-year-old kid, you know, was raised in Dayton, poverty. I got off the plane, Bob, in January, Portland, Oregon. It wasn't like it was, it was June. It was January. And I didn't even make it out of the airport. And I called him up and I said, I want to move here. And he goes, Hilson, didn't you just land? I go, yes, sir. And he goes, you hadn't even seen the city. I go, the fresh air, the trees. I go, this is amazing. I want to move here. I, I moved there, Bob. Um, and I got there with three offices. And when I left, I had eight offices. Here's what's critical. Got to tell you the story because it, it has so much to do with, with my drive and will and ambition to do things. 30 days after I got there, Bob, I get a call from Mr. Gentry and he goes, hello, son, how you doing? I'm, I'm great, sir. Doing great. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Eugene, Oregon and open an office. Yes, sir. He goes, you need anything for me? No, sir. Okay. Go for it. Let me know how it goes. Yes, sir. I hang up the phone, Bob. I go back in my little office. I sit down and I said, where the hell is Eugene? Oregon? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, then it was like, okay, first things first. And you didn't have ways. Didn't have ways. Yeah. Hell, there wasn't even a map west yeah. at that point. Um, and so that that's exactly what I did. I was like, okay, first things first, where's Eugene, Oregon? Second, drive to Eugene, Oregon. Third, how do you find a, a place? And then it hit me. I'm like, okay, I've been through all throughout the country. I've got three in Portland that all look alike. Okay, just replicate this thing. Uh, like I said, got there, uh, opened up three more from scratch, bought out two competitors. Uh, but what was key, what, three years into being there, a white lady walked in and she walked in holding the hand of this uh, mixed race, curly haired little boy. Mm. And Bob, it hit me. It, it was like looking at me and my mom walking in and she was paying on her hundred dollar loan. And Bob I was like, ah. Oh. I'm just keeping people trapped. And I called up Mr. Gentry and, and I was like, hey, I'm I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And I go, you know, just because it's legal doesn't make it right. And and so I left. Was he cool about that? Was he no? Mad? Yeah, he, no. he was he was he was frustrated. He was upset. What, yeah. what, matter of fact, about what he gave me to this day, one of the greatest compliments I, I've ever received as far as my my career goes. He told me one time, he said, Man, if I had 11 more of you, I could take over the world. And, and man, I still hold that compliment near and dear. But yeah, the, it's and, and and let me say this, Bob. Uh, to be fair uh, to the the payday loan industry, it has helped out many a person who you know lights yeah, were turned yeah. off and, and needed you know didn't have any money for Christmas gifts or whatever. So I, I don't want to paint a, a completely bad picture, but yeah, it does keep a lot of people trapped and, and stuck. And because you got to think about it, if you got to borrow a hundred dollars, think about how bad of a position you're in in the first place. How are you going to pay that back? Um, so yeah, I got out of that and and I upgraded. I got into something equally as shady: mortgages. <laughs> 
Um, but but there was a trend. Once I had learned the stock market, if you notice, I got into things that were were financing interest rates and, and, yeah. and compound interest. And and so then I got into mortgages and and had a great career. I worked at uh, Countrywide Home Loans, had the opportunity, uh, what, four or five years ago, I got to meet Angelo Mazzello, the founder of, of Countrywide. I know a lot of people think he's a devil. Um, but for me, it was an honor to to meet him because I made my my career in mortgages. But in 2007, the mortgage industry imploded and I lost everything, Bob, everything. I was negative broke. I had to borrow money from my dad, my, my stepdad and my best friend to pay my, my rent. I lost all my money in the stock market, uh, lost my career. And it, it was a pivotal moment for me. It was a great moment for me because I remember having to look in the mirror and have an out loud conversation with myself. Not, not this, this talk to yourself in your head. Like it was out loud. Like I was talking to me and I remember I said to myself, man, you made all that money. You lost it all. Okay. So you know how to make money. You taught yourself how to do it, but your character is horrible. You, you can't hold a relationship. You treat women like garbage. You, you're derogatory. You're just, just, I was a monster. You know, I had zero respect for women. Well, and I mean, I, I'm not endorsing that, but given, given that, that's what you grew up seeing modeled, right? I mean, well, that's and, not and, a surprise. And, and I asked myself that, Bob. <laughs> yeah. I said, okay, why is that? You know, I looked at it and, and I said, okay, well, my dad was a pimp. I saw how he treated women. And then I saw, well, I've never seen a man respect or, or honor my, my mother. And I realized, oh, okay, that's where it comes from. But But here's the thing. Unlike a lot of people, I didn't use that as an excuse. I'm like, oh no, you taught yourself how to make money. You need to teach yourself how to have a, a better character. And so then it was, you know, as I did with everything, observe, pay attention, model. What what would I want my family to look like? What you know, what what does a healthy relationship consist of? And I and I still struggled for a while. And uh, oh, Bob, matter of fact, uh, last Thursday, September 1st, my 10-year anniversary with my wife. This is the first healthy relationship I've ever had. And, and before my wife, I just couldn't do it, man. I, I didn't know what to do, but I had to, had to teach myself. All right. So I'm going to skip us forward. I'll, I'll give the cliff notes from my understanding and then let you fill in. So you pitch this book to scribe, you meet Tucker Max. Um, eventually you, you start asking a bunch of questions about the business and you end up as the CEO of business. He founded it, but he steps down. Um, and then you end up, you know, running the business. So give us the quick uh story on that. All right. So I was at a software company and I started at the software company. I was the lowest paid person. There were 13 of us, and I was the lowest paid person. Uh, selling enterprise software. I sat in a storage closet. Uh, I won't go into all, all the details, but uh, lowest paid uh, person, two years later, became the president of the company. And, Seems to be good uh, at this. Hey, man, I, you know, I'm all, I, I have no problem starting from the bottom. Yeah. It just never bothered me. And so I uh, became the president. Well, I'm, we're five years into the software company. We we scaled it from that storage closet to two offices in Austin, one in Houston, one in Dallas, one in Monterey, Mexico. And uh, that company actually ended up being acquired by Accenture. Hmm. But when I was there, I, I was on a flight and I, and I remember saying to myself, okay, if something happened to me, my children would not know where I come from. They wouldn't know my background. 
And I, I got off the plane, hit up my little network at the time, and I got introduced to Tucker Max uh, because I wanted to write my book. Tucker comes over to the software office. We're sitting in this massive conference room. He goes, oh, my God, you, you got a hell of a story. And, and what was funny with Tucker, I told him, I said, look, man, I don't care. I, I said, I don't even want to sell a copy. He said you want three copies or something. Yeah, I said, well, yeah. five copies for, for my great, great, great grandchildren. And he looks at me and he goes, what? He goes, I've never heard anyone say they don't want to sell any copies. I go, look, man, this is a legacy piece. I, I don't even want the story out there. And so he said, okay, great. And as, as we're wrapping up, he, he said to me, man, you built a great company here. And I said, no, no one person ever builds a great company. I said, it takes a team of great people to build a great company. And he asked me for feedback as I went through the process. And I got my first email from what was then Book in a Box. We used to be Book in a Box, now we're Scribe Media. And I call up Tucker and I'm like, hey, man, you still want this feedback? And he goes, yeah. I said, okay. Keep doing this. This is good. This sucks. What are you thinking, man? Don't ever do this shit again. <laughs> and he goes, you got all that from an email. I was like, yeah. And he says, would you sit on our advisory board? Okay. Um, then he invited me to an executive meeting. Now, keep in mind, they're about 13 months old. They're a true startup. It's, it's Tucker and Zach. Two, I, I say this if they were sitting here. Yeah. Two, great, two great guys. Great idea. No damn clue how to run a company. And, and so... They invite me to their executive meeting. Oh, Bob, it was some of the most broke shit I'd ever seen. <laughs> but they did have a Tucker was doing some interesting, and I know you've evolved it, but he was doing some interesting stuff about culture and he had this open Google oh, document. And yeah, there's a big difference between the company and Tucker, yeah. our culture that was 100% started by, by Tucker. And yeah. yes, it, it granted it has evolved, but that foundation. That was all Tucker right. Max. This was all process and systems. and Yep. Yeah. yeah. People can say what a, a, a lot of things about Tucker. Um, but yeah, that that culture, the culture of Scribe Media was that that's Tucker's child. So, but yeah, uh, Zach and Tucker invited me to Starbucks. We sat down and uh, they, they said, you know, we give you equity in the company. Would you come be the CEO? And Bob, in that moment, I'll never forget. I'll, I'll tell this story when I'm 92. <laughs> I was in that moment. I said to myself, holy shit. I'm the president right now of a software company. And I can't write code. I can be the CEO of a publishing company. I can't tell you an adverb from an adjective, and I can't spell. I was like, God bless America. And I'm like, this is incredible. And I was like, I'm in. And so here we are, man. But six and a half years later, we've worked with, what, 2,200 authors. Man, there's like 115 uh, W2 people here now. We just expanded our office space. Yeah, clearly a lot of people know we we published David Goggins' book, Tiffany Haddish. So yeah, here here we are, man. Yeah, I mean, you sort of helped launch this new category. So so one of the things I, I read is that there used to be something inscribed media on on the I think the walls in the office that the hustle is real. <laughs> I know, and I know when you remodeled the office, it disappeared. So. Yep. So well, let's use that. Let's talk about, and in your new book, Modern Leadership, what, what, why did that go? Uh, two reasons I took that down. Um, one, let me be very fair. Uh, I took it down. Um, the hustle will only take you so far. And, yep. and the hustle took me as far as it could go. You know, I lived on that. The hustle was real. The hustle was real. And, and so, you know, you, you have to grow and improve and evolve as a person. Truly, the hustle will only take you so far. 
And and then, so that was the first one was like, okay, you know, this is not serving me anymore. You know, the hustle was real. We did, we had it, I had it painted massive on, on the wall. There, there are times that it helps and there's times that it <laughs> right. hurts. Yeah, totally. Um, but here's the second piece. And this is equally for me, what was uh, a big reason why I did away with it. You have so many people out there now, you know, the hustle is real. I'm a hustler. I mean, like, you don't even know what a hustler is. Like, what are you talking about? And so I just don't want to even be associated with someone who's using a word that that I'm going to use a, about myself. Because if you, the hustle, come on. There's someone that comes to mind every time you say that, but yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> here, think of this, Bob. Here, here's where I try to share this. People are always amazed. They're like, oh my God, how did you go from the lowest paid person to the president of a software company? And, you know, they always want to celebrate that. Oh my God, that's amazing. And they're like, then they say, how'd you do it? And then when I go into how I did it, no one wants to talk anymore because in the five years I was at that software company, I only took 11 days vacation in five years. And you and I both know there's people who take 11 days vacation in Q1. But when I tell people, I said, yeah, you were, not, you were not a quiet quitter. No, <laughs> three days. I won't even my... go into that because I'm sure you're, yeah, we won't go there. Yeah, look, it's generally not a great idea to not work hard. But at the same time, we shouldn't be working ourselves to death, which the stats so that people do and things that we don't care about and otherwise. But again, you were in a circumstance where, where you had to, right? And so all this stuff is context is important. Oh, context is important, but but also here's the thing for me, Bob. I, I agree with you. Do what you love because you know, here's the thing, and I can't get past this one. You have people on Sunday night, six o'clock, they're pissed off because they got to go to their job tomorrow. They don't like where they work. Yeah. There's people who on Friday say, Thank God it's Friday. And and where I ask myself is if you're working at a place where you have to say, Thank God it's Friday. Why are you trading two for five? Go find a different career. You're not doing anyone any favors. Yeah, if you have that, I would say that Monday morning high school feeling, right? Right. That you do not want that. And, but here's what's most important on that, Bob, where, where people, yes, criticize me because I only took 11 days vacation. But here's where I got a problem with it. Uh, on the other side, people will binge watch Game of Thrones. Yeah. Friday at six o'clock through Sunday at six o'clock and tell you they watched every episode. You're also not wearing that as a badge of honor, no. and no, nor are you saying, nor are you doing that with four kids and a wife and a family. Like, so that, that is, it's important. Again, I think when you were 23 years old and didn't have options, it was a different thing than, than where you are now. I, and you're not, so I, again, context, very important. Context is important. And, and I will share, you know, when I was at the software company, yes, I had my wife, we did have two kids. Um, but I also looked at my time. So, Bob, you know this, my five pillars, God, health, family, business, and investing. So what you notice there is there's no sports bar on Friday night. Right. There's no uh, golf for four and a half hours on, on Saturday. So I consolidated my life on what Choices. are my priorities. Yeah. Exactly. So you're not going to see me binge watching right. Game of Thrones and then be pissed off on, on Monday. The, the amount of people who tell me they don't have time, who I see them scrolling two hours a day on their social media, they're just not being honest with themselves there about how they're spending their time. There it is, Bob. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. All right. So we're going to now get into the heart. It took us a while, but let's get in. First of all, <laughs> you, you've won all these awards and, and accolades as CEO. The company has for its culture. You came out with this book, Modern Leadership, which I joked with you before. Like I, I'm willing to talk about leadership books written by leaders, not, not academics. So, you know, just off the bat, how do you define modern leadership? And like what separates it from what came before? So where, where I separate it and where I see modern leadership is, and, and here's the best example I can give you. In 1955, we started tracking the Fortune 500 companies in America, the, the largest, the, the 500 largest companies in America we started tracking in 1955. You did not have a black CEO show up on the list until 1987. So 30 plus mm -hmm. years. So what I see as modern leadership is in order to evolve, we're coming off of a broken playbook, a very exclusionary playbook. That and the command and control playbook yes. that sort of came down from the military. And the military doesn't even use it, hasn't used it for decades, right? Well, well and what, what's <laughs> crazy, Bob, is if you even go before the military, and, and a lot of people don't want to have this discussion because it's it's painful to... Corporate America, the business world it itself, was built off of slavery. If you look at the structure of it, it was built off of slavery. And people, oh, no, no, go back and look. It That is what it is built off of. And you're talking about the physical labor. And yeah, yes. those, yeah. Think about this, Bob. Look at some of the things that, that we say in corporate America. We want to recruit and retain. Look at the definition of retain. It means to keep possession of. I'm not trying to retain anybody. We want to attract and provide. We want to attract great people and provide a, a phenomenal work environment with a great culture, great pay, fulfilling work. And, and so it, the, the whole playbook, it's broken. Even, you know, so some people will ask me this. Well, if it's so broken, why did it work so long? Oh, well, things die slowly, right? Oh, well, they they well, can I'll, die for 20 years, right? I, I mean, tell people yeah. that <laughs> the reason why I feel it works so long is because the very people who built the broken playbook also created the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because think about it. For the longest, it served a certain group of people. A Empires can be in decline for, yes. for decades, right? I mean, that is just by being big. It Start here. If companies are, okay, well, where do we start, Javon? Start at this one. Take a look at your career descriptions, your job descriptions that you have posted, and ask yourself, do we really need a college degree for that role? Do we? Because, and Bob, you and I were just talking about this. So my kids, like yours, when they get old enough, if they choose to go to college, 
it's already paid for. They'll, they'll graduate, no student loan debt. They won't have to work through college, blah, blah, blah. But here's the deal. I say this about my own children. If they graduate, no student loan debt, didn't have to work through college, and they got their degree, all they had to do was get up each day, go to class, go to the library, study, go back home, wash, rinse, repeat. Bob, that's glorified school. Only yeah. thing difference is mom wasn't there to wake you up each day. And so you now have this piece of paper. What does it really tell me about you? Not a damn thing. It tells me your parents pay for your damn education. That's all it tells me. Particularly if you studied comparative history and you want yes. to go get a job doing copywriting, right? I, you know. So <laughs> it, it's let's ask ourselves if someone got a liberal arts degree and we're hiring for a an assistant project manager or a claims processor, right? Right. Yeah. What in the hell is a liberal art? So you got a piece of paper. I'm still going to have to teach, coach, and mentor you in the role so you understand what to do. So why not open up many different candidates that we could possibly interview? Because, you know, we, we have one person that works with us. And one of my interview questions is this. Tell me the greatest challenge you've overcome in life. And, and I preface it. I asked them, I said, how much do you know about my background? Then I share a little bit. Because now what I've done is... You can't dare tell me oh, your biggest challenge was your thesis paper in college. Come on, seriously. And so we have one lady who works with us and she broke out and said, hey, I used to have to go across the street. I lived in the hourly rate motel and I used to have to take Taco Bell packets to eat food to stay alive. Immediately, I'm like, I want you because now she did have a master's degree. I'm like, if you can come from that and get a master's degree, I can teach you damn near anything you need to know. Um, but a degree itself does not tell me anything. Now, don't get me wrong, Bob, for those of you who are getting riled up right now, we're also hiring for a CFO right now. Yeah, I kind of want that person to have some credentials. <laughs> so, it, you know, but does every role require a degree? No, it doesn't. So I think the other thing, one of your core beliefs, right, is is you don't you don't sit on the top of the org chart. You no. are a, you're a big believer in in servant leadership, and the leader's job is to figure out. Hire great people, figure out what they need, and get out of their way, right? That's it, man. Bob, you, you know, if you you go to most websites and you go to the About Us page, first thing you see, you see founders, chairmen, uh, you know, C-suite executives. And what I don't understand is if you're in the role of a CEO or, or leadership, your role is to serve and support. So if you go to our About Us page, I'm at the bottom. Because my role is to serve and support all the people who are actually executing on the role. And, and think about this for a second. So many CEOs, they, they get all worked up when I, when I say this. You can have the greatest plan, the greatest vision. But if you don't have great people to execute, your plan and vision don't mean shit. <laughs> and so uh, you're only, as a CEO, you're truly only as good as the great people that you get to serve and support. And, and so for me, I always keep it in, in mind, okay, your role is to serve and support. My desk is in the middle of the office. I sit in the middle of the floor. I want to be accessible. And, and really, Bob, here, get, get, let, me, let me throw this out to you, Bob, because you know we're talking about modern leadership. I had a teacher ask me, actually, it was a superintendent. They said, okay, if you were the principal of the school, what would be the first thing you would do? I said, if I was the principal, I go, I'd move my desk out into the middle of the floor of, of the school. And they're like, why? I go, because my role is to serve and support the students and teachers, but I sit behind a desk all day. I go, if I need to go have a, 
parent-teacher conference and need to have a, a meeting with a teacher or a student. Okay, so I keep a conference room over there for those moments, but I should be visible to the people that I actually serve and support, the students and teachers. And let's not make the principal's office this bad thing. I'm My role is to serve. Don't make me the bad guy. Go to the principal's conference table. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I, I see the same in business is, you know, I sit in the middle of the floor. You know, I, I have conversations with people. I'm very accessible. And, and again, you know, this, Bob, he's always got that one, one person out there. Well, oh, that's not scalable. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, locking yourself in an office isn't that, isn't that scalable either. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, so, you know, the modern leader has, has, We've talked about this. I actually think people would be surprised on your viewpoints on this, particularly considering, you know, where you just came from and how you've navigated this. Because, you know, the, the modern leader is weighed down by a couple of things, I think, these days that are new to the job. The, the you know, pressure to be socially aware and weigh in on a bunch of issues. And then, you know, this line between personal and professional and where do we draw it and bringing this stuff into the workplace. So let's go through those kind of one by one. How do you decide for Scribe and as a leader what to weigh in on and when to stay out of the conversation about world events, public discourse or otherwise? Um, You know, I, I'll weigh in on whatever's asked of me. I don't run from it, you know, because the fact of the matter is everyone has an opinion. Yeah. And, and I also feel as well that Running from it actually is worse than actually speaking on it. You know, everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a thought, a, a belief. And, and I'll share a, an important one that happened with us. Okay, can I ask a question before you share yeah. that? Do you, just clarifying. As the leader, right, obviously the organization yourself, you're a person. Do you think the company should have opinions? Or do you think by the nature of that, that that is alienating to some of their employees? I, I personally believe this is business is in service of people. So for me, it's very simple. People process profits. Yeah. With those profits, do great things for the communities that we live and work in. But it's all people first. And so, yes, I do believe companies have an opinion, a, a thought, uh, a stance, you know, what whatever it is. And, and so I'll share a very strong one yeah. that came up with us. Uh, you know, right now, you know, people would be it on LinkedIn, be it on Facebook, be it on their email signatures, uh, use pronouns. And so every, you know, I, I had a, a big group of people within our organization come to me and say, we should mandate that everyone puts pronouns on their email signature. And it, it hit me. And and I don't believe anyone, well, I know no one had ever come to, with, to them with the position that I did. And I go, no, I'm not doing it. And they were like, what? And you're not going to support? And I go, no, no, no. I go, two reasons why I won't do pronouns. I said, first and foremost. Why you wouldn't mandate them? Not why I wouldn't mandate them. them. Yeah, yeah, okay. Just be, I, yeah. I said, first and foremost, I go, I got a GED, so I don't even know what a damn pronoun is. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, that was number one. I go, number two, on a serious note. Growing up, mixed race, you know, my dad black, my mom white, I was constantly asked, what are you? What are you? Now, I know what they were asking me. What's your nationality? And Bob, I'm still asked this question. You know, at the, my child's school, uh, beginning of this school year, someone asked me, what, what are you? And because of that, 
in the way I grew up, I was always trying to fit in. I was always trying to find an identity. I was always trying to belong, to be accepted. And because of that, I'll be damned if you're going to limit me or put me in a box of a race-driven, I'm, I'm human. So when right. you ask me, what am I? I'm human. Now, if you want to ask me my nationality, okay, my mom's white, dad's black, great. But to just pull me down to what are you? I, I'm human. So I said, I'm never going to put it on my name, Javon McCormick, uh, half white, half black. I go, so I'm not going to mandate that someone says uh, Javon McCormick pronouns, wh whatever they are. And when I explained it to people that way, it, it was very eye-opening. People are like, wow, I, I really appreciate that. I'd never considered it from that perspective. I said, because the fact of the matter is, it does not matter to me what pronouns you use, if you're transgender, if you're gay, your sexual preference, your race, your religion, who you voted for. Are you human? Great. Welcome. And I said, now, here's what I do support. Anyone that wants to put pronouns on their email address, go for it. I, I completely support you. Do your thing. I go, but I'm not going to mandate it. That That's ridiculous to me. I'm not. I see people as people, as humans, and I'm going to treat you as such. Does not matter what your pronouns are. What do you think? You know, one thing I've seen in some discussions and organizations, though, there's also this line between mandate and support, which I think is then sort of a little bit of use of guilt. Like, to me, that's not that different than a mandate. Like, should leaders stay away from that? You think they should stay away from that, too? Well, you don't have to, but wouldn't you, you know, in this case, you don't have to, I mean, with someone, you don't have to, but wouldn't you want to support the other people who would feel more comfortable then? Well, I, I feel the support is welcoming people who choose right. to do it. That That is the support. Mandating, um, that to me is no different than, and I'll take it back and call it what it is. When they used to say separate but equal, you know, whites only, blacks only, that, that was a mandate. Like black people, you can only sit at that counter. White people, you sit over here. Black people, back of the bus, you, that water fountain. That's a mandate. So for me, I'm very much of uh, supporting is being there for someone if that's the route they choose to go down. Just like this, if someone chooses to have the transition surgery, great. I support that, you know, and, and, and Bob, here's, here's what's important, man. I, I really learned this, uh, not only being mixed race, but I learned a lot of it from my mom as well. I remember back in the early nineties when th there was a, you know, it was controversial about gays adopting children because they oh, they're going to push their views onto the kids. And, and I remember my mom said to me, she said, you know what, when I grew up in that hell hole of an orphanage, and no one cared about us. No one ever said, I love you. No one said, happy birthday. No one said, Merry Christmas. No one tucked you in at night. She said, I would have given anything for a gay couple to adopt me and say, I love you and tuck me in at night. And, and that really, I was like, wow. And it, because here's the thing, Bob, you and I both know this. Man, hell, it's hard enough to find one person to love in this world. You know, if, you, if you're gay and you find your person, man, do your thing. And I feel like that's such an issue with with our society right now is we, we we're just so busy trying to dictate into everyone else's uh, life relationships, how we think they should be. Yeah. And 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 look, these things are, are crossing over. So let me give you an example. You're in Texas, right? So I assume your employees come to you. Do, do people come and say, well, what's Scribe's stance on abortion? 
people are struggling with this. I, and I know you you have great frameworks on this. And so I, I'd love to hear like, so how, how, again, how, what, what is the answer to that? Or, or I'm more interested less in the policy, but on the process behind or the ideology behind the, the policy. What was mind blowing to a lot of people is we had actually done a um, TikTok video of yeah. me talking about abortion long before it was ever overturned. And the big problem that I found with most people is they were talking about abortion from a pro or choice. That's it. There, there was no other conversation. Yeah. And so, so again, you know, people ask what, what's my stance? And I said, look, or my, what's my, the organization's stance, which again, this is the, I, this is where leaders were struggling. I saw a lot of leaders very clear publishing around this to say that it was, they were publishing their viewpoint and not their organization's viewpoint, which I thought was, was interesting. Well, and, and I think that's very critical because yeah. You can have a viewpoint as the CEO does not mean it's the viewpoint of the whole organization. And, and so I came out with, with my viewpoint and, and it was from a very different place that again, most people don't think yeah. of it from this, this perspective, how odd that we would bring this up considering we, we just talked about this of, of that, you know, my mom had an illegal portion. Yeah. So I shared that. And, and I said, what, what I find interesting is so many people will stand in front of these abortion clinics, protest, yeah, baby murderer, and, and, you know, and shame women and guilt women. And, and what I find interesting about that, Bob, is my wife and I would, ne would never have an abortion. Our kids go to private Christian school. I'm a God guy. We, we wouldn't have an abortion. However, people try to tell me I'm not a God guy because I do believe in pro-choice because I would never want a woman to have to go through what my mom went through. And that's just a different perspective that most people haven't considered. And even more so, here's my big problem with it, Bob. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people will picket, protest, baby murder, keep your baby, babies, you know, babies. They're, they're like, not at the foster home, right? That's my, I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> wait a minute. When my mom gave birth to me, where the hell were you when it was time to teach her how to change a diaper? Where were you when the only thing she left with was the three diapers they gave her and, and the one little onesie they gave her that, that I left with? Where were you then? And, and here's what's mind-blowing to me, Bob, is then they will sit there and say, oh, well, she should have made better choices. Well, that's what she was going to do in having an abortion. And so people just want to play both sides of the fence, but they don't want to have the full conversation. And then I take it a step further, Bob, and this is very important to me. So then my mother decides, okay, I won't have the abortion. I'll have the child. Then she has the child, which she had no business having me. You know, and people have said, oh, so what are you saying? She shouldn't have had you. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. My mother had no business having me. Hmm. And, but then... Now I'm in and out of juvenile prison. Now you call me an animal. Now you tell me, oh, well, those lessons should have been learned at home. From who? My dad right. was a pimp. My mom was an orphan. And, and now you're looking at the kid and now you're blaming the parents. And it's blame, 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 point, point, point. But let's go back to where she could have had that, that choice to have that child or not. 
And that's where I, I do my best to try to open people's eyes and say, okay, look, even if you're a Christian, you're a God person, Catholic, whatever it is. Okay, great. It's not my place to take that up with, with those individuals who choose that. They got to take that up with themselves first and then God, if that's who they believe in. So I, yeah, I am a pro-choice guy. But, but your, your culture, I mean, one of the things too, you, you have lots of different people with different yeah. viewpoints. It is not homogeneous in every way. You know, talk, you even talked about members of your leadership who have completely different beliefs than you, but you, totally. you fostered a culture where people res- respect and trust each other. Like talk about what does that look like? Or how do you set the foundation for that in a business? Cause I, I think people assume based on where we are today that they need to agree on certain things in, in order to be able to work together. Well, and, and again, certain people, they may have those beliefs and that's fine. And you yeah. know, we, we may not be the place that you want to work. Okay. Great. Not, not a problem, but you know, so says, yes, I'm a guy guy. Kids go to private Christian school, but our chief experience officer, she is gay. She does not believe in God. And, and guess what? It, God forbid she was to be, to get, uh, in a car accident and become paralyzed, man, I'd be the first one there wiping her butt, reading her a story, giving her a bath, putting her to bed, brushing her teeth. And people look at me like, well, but you guys don't have the same she's human. And I have love for her as a human. We can have different beliefs. And, and more importantly, Bob, what, what else comes with that is we have built a culture of welcome. Because right now, what you see is everyone's talking about DEI and DEI initiatives and, and you know, the diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I, I don't... I don't go down that those paths because it doesn't matter how you identify. It doesn't matter your sexual preference. Are you human? Can, will you perform in the role? Will you drive results? This is the key thing, right? I was going to yes. say, say the three things because, you know, we're talking about the you as a person, but also objectively, if you agree with someone, but they don't do these three things, I'm guessing they don't have a role. For exactly. Long, right? will, will you perform in the role, drive results, uphold the values? If you can do those three things, welcome. And and here's the thing. I I don't want to be accepted. I don't want to be tolerated. And and here's the new hotness. Now they're trying to tack this on to the back of DEI, uh, belonging. That's broken. You know why? Because belonging implies someone doesn't. And and again, I know I got a lot of the, the DEI experts out there mad at me because I'm like, no, that's stupid. I don't want to belong. I want to be welcomed. I want to be welcomed in, and I want to continue to be welcomed once I'm in. I don't want to be accepted. I'm not applying to college. I'm not applying to to uh, a country club. I don't want to be tolerated, and I don't want to belong. I want to be welcomed. That's a fair perspective. One of the things I included uh, in, in my upcoming book was an interesting story. I think one of the things that that you do really well at Scribe, I, I think Tucker might have started this, but you continued it. But you train people how to give and accept feedback because I think obviously these things you know boil over. Can you explain what that looks like for your team and even the authors that you work with? Yeah, even this Bob, you know, we're talking about culture and how how we go about it. You, even that word, I mean, you're used to me by now. We don't use the word train. You know, we yeah. we teach, coach, how do you and teach? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, you know, you you train a dog, train a horse, train your body at the gym. Uh, but when it comes to people, we want to teach, coach, and mentor. We want you to know that we have a vested interest in you as a person. Um, so again, 
getting away from the old playbook language, training yeah. people. Um, but yeah, we, we talk people through how to give and receive feedback because so many people, you can give them feedback and they're shook by thinking right. you're attacking them or even attacking the point, but not you as a person. And, and that's very critical where most people can't separate themselves from a point and, yeah. and as a person. And I, I I wrote this in the book, and I'm sure you've seen this. I was going to say, I'm sure you'll agree. That's a bad positioning. You can disagree. But I have seen people, you know, rather than what they do, their character has been criticized or something that they are, not something that they did. They are damaged like years and years after that. Like they actually carry that with them. A constant one it people struggle with, I see in business, is, is people who are quote unquote not strategic, right? They're very different to tell to Javon, Javon, you're just not strategic, versus you know which can you fix that about yourself you don't know i mean that versus like it you know javon like in the presentation yesterday you presented 90 percent tactics and very little strategy that the client could you know get into so you know so give me one like how, how would you uh, what, what's a practice you would teach someone to be a better giver of feedback and a better listener uh, a receiver of feedback so so for me bob you know this i i, I always um one, you know, I, I teach, coach, and mentor. Ninety percent of it is through mistakes that I've made in my career, and also by way of things I've learned through, throughout my life. And so, I, I share with people um, in this particular instance is this is important. You know, eight years old, we were standing in line, my mom and I, waiting for our, our welfare, our free handout. And there was an older white lady standing in front of us, and she looked down at me. She looked up at my mom, and she spit in my mom's face, and she called her a nigger lover. And I, I remember no one came to my mom's rescue. No one uh, said anything to the older lady. My mom just stood there, cried and wiped the spit from her face. And it was in that moment, Bob, eight years old, I realized, okay, I'm mixed race. Everyone's not going to like me in life, no matter what I do, because some people aren't going to agree with mixed race. Some people are going to think my mom should not have had sex with a black man. And so I knew everyone wasn't going to like me. So I had the ultimate gift, and it was a gift, of learning that at eight years old. Because most people don't learn that, you know, God forbid, high school, college, or like you said, your first career. Now people are just, their whole world is broken because, oh my God, Sally doesn't like my eyes. Or <laughs> Bob criticized my presentation. My work. Yeah. yeah. And so I share that with people to say, look, that's who I am as a person, something that can never change. You gave a presentation that can be improved upon. We can work on that. We can teach, coach, and mentor you through that. Do not allow that to just shake you as a person. You're priming them. Right. And like you said, it's a lot of it is context. When people can put that in perspective of, here's something that I can't change for every day that I'm on this earth. We can teach you how to give a better presentation to Bob. And, and furthermore, hey, guess what, uh, Sally? Bob's an ass. No. <laughs> it's fair. True. <laughs> All right. We, uh, I, I, again, we'll have to do chapter two. Could go on for a long time. I think we're hitting our season record here. So but let's wrap up nice. with this question. It's multivariant. Uh, okay. So you get to choose your own adventure. But I always like to ask. So it could be personal or professional. For some people, it's single, and actually, for some people, it's repeated. But what's the mistake 
or, or your life or career that you've learned the most from? Um, Bob, you know, I, I'd have to say it was, here's the thing where, where I'm struggling to see it personally. You know, I shared a little bit with you earlier where I said that, it, you know, it was in that moment that I realized my character and I couldn't hold a relationship. I don't, I don't know that I necessarily call that a mistake because I just didn't know how. Yeah. And so the mistake I would say that I ended up learning from, and, and you really can trace this back to, um, you know, when I was in the mail room and I didn't uh, assist the lady at it, it becoming more effective and efficient. I remember when I was at the software company and I just killed it in, in sales, killed it and, and was just Bob literally killing it. But I was toxic, Bob. I was bringing in so much business, man. I should have been fired 71 different times, but be, because I knew I was untouchable. I knew you could not get rid of me. And literally, I was the definition of toxic for the culture, should be fired. And, and guess what? I got promoted to executive vice president of sales and marketing. <laughs> We've heard this before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then I created a toxic team. And, yeah. and so sales and marketing, I was like, I don't care. We're going to kill it. We're going to be the best in here. And, and so then I got promoted again to president of the company. And Bob, I came in to, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie with Tom Cruise, the firm where he walks yeah. in and, and it's like six in the morning. He turns all the lights on. So I remember my first day as president, it was like January 3rd. And I walk in, I turn the lights on, no one's there. And I look around and Bob, it just smacked me in the face. I was like, oh shit, I'm truly only as good as the great people that I work with. And now I'm responsible for all of this. And that that was a, a eye opener of culture, putting people first, realizing that I, I not only should I not know all the answers, damn it, you better not know all the answers. Do not be the smartest person in the room. Yeah, and wrong, so, wrong room. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, Bob, I, I boil it down and make, make it easy on myself. You know, it's always three. Um, surround the company with people far smarter than myself. Surround myself with people far smarter than myself. Uh, so that's rules one and two. Rule number three, repeat rules one and two. That That makes it easy. That's it, man. All right. So where can people find out more about the book, yourself, Scribe? Where do they go on the interwebs? Oh, man. I try to, you know, I, I break it down to um, LinkedIn. And sure. then also, you, you, so you can find me on LinkedIn. I, I post lessons learned, mistakes I've made, things of that nature. And then also... Um, you can find us at scribemedia.com and then there's a, a what modernleader.com. So yeah, I, who knew that, that I'd have some internet presence one, one day, but here I am. You heard Javon's work ethic. So if you can't find him, you're, you're not looking, you're not looking hard <laughs> enough, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. We've established there's not a lot of Javon McCormick's out there. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. You'll, you'll find him on the first page. Yep. All right, Javon, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm always inspired by your story and love hearing your perspective on leadership, company culture, otherwise, and we'll we'll, we'll definitely have to do it again. My man, Bob, I, I I still love you, even though it took you, what, what, three years to have me on? But I, I, still got, I still got love for Bob Glazer. We, we, you know, we waited until, you know, this is, a, this is a good time for you. It's the right time for everything. Fair so. enough, fair enough. All right. You can learn more about Javon and his work on the episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or you enjoy the Elevate podcast in general, 
I have a quick favor. I'd appreciate if you could just leave us a review. That is the number one way that new users discover the show and hear from great people like Javon. So thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.